and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. This week, the guest is Sandra Healy, Head of Diversity and Inclusion for DCU, Dublin City University. Sandra has had a very successful career in technology, working with companies like Vodafone, where she held many leadership positions. If you can't go into an organisation and talk about your family and talk about your life and it become part of, like I, I describe it as you've eight hours to sleep, you've eight hours to live and you've eight hours to work. And it, so that's a third of your life is spent in that organisation. And if you can't combine, if, there, if there's no link between the eight hours of your life and the eight hours of your work, like that's, that's not a good place from a psychological perspective. Psychology is one area of study that Sandra has specialised in, but she's also into design and technology and now diversity and inclusion. And there are other skills she's learned along the road in the corporate world, such as self-promotion, which she says doesn't necessarily come easily to women. You have to learn to self-promote. You know, maybe for men, they don't have to learn so much to self-promote. But if it's a skill, self-promotion, if, it, if it's not a natural thing, well then it's a skill that you must learn. And if you're ambitious and you want to get on, and particularly in the corporate environment, if you want to survive, uh, you, you need absolutely critical that you learn to self-promote and network. Sandra has worked with diverse teams in her various career moves over the years, and she's a believer in the untapped resources that women bring to the table. When a woman is ambitious and she is supported and is in the right organisation with the right env environment, she is unstoppable. Unfortunately, there are still many barriers, both visible and invisible, that get in the way of women's careers. But Sandra believes we can't afford to wait for things to happen organically. If we leave things to organically change at the rate of change, it'll be 180 years for parity. So we have to think about how many generations of our daughters and grandchildren or if we just leave things so something has to change. First though I asked her what exactly does diversity and inclusion mean? Um, so diversity and inclusion I suppose simply can be described as diversity is the difference so our individual differences as human beings and inclusion then from an organisational context is making sure that there is an environment that values and supports those differences so that every individual uh, regardless of where they are within their life journey or regardless of who they are, that they are supported within their work environment. And why is there a need for diversity and inclusion? Has it typically not been the place in organisations? Yeah, that's a good question. Why is there a need? Uh, I think, I suppose, as, as we are individuals and we can get lost in particularly large organisations, and I think we need to have a focus on making sure that we get the best out of the individual and making sure that they are supported. Because I suppose in my view, lots of different things can happen along the life, our life journey. And as we spend a third of our lives in work, I think it's really important that we are supported uh, through the different things and different transitions that happen within our lives. Okay, so tell me about your own life, uh, about yourself, where you've come from and your own career to date. So I grew up in Bowmount in Dublin. Uh, I spent 10 years in London, uh, moved back to Ireland and then moved back to the UK and I lived in the Midlands then uh, for about three years uh, and then I moved back to Ireland and I'm back since then. I, my career, I've had 20 years in, in the telecoms industry. I've done everything from technical systems engineer into pre-sales consulting, into sales, uh, into my last role, which was in Vodafone, where I was head of customer delivery. So I had five teams and 45 people working for me. But I've, I have quite a diverse career. I started out as a graphic designer in Harrods many years ago, and I set up the graphic design studio in Harrods. I worked there for five years. So I, I suppose when, when I feel like I've mastered something, I like moving on to something else. I think there's been, I suppose, two common threads throughout my, my career. Uh, one, I would say very much, I'm very much focused on people within the organization. And what I have become a real expert at is uh, transformational change. So whether that be taking things apart, putting them back together again, but being mindful of the people within those uh, uh, large uh, strategic changes. Then from an academic perspective, I have an honors degree in psychology. 
I did that part-time many years ago and then I decided to do a master's in organisational psychology and that's how I connected in with DCU. And the third strand then to my life is for the last maybe seven, eight years, I've been voluntarily involved in diversity and inclusion within Ireland. So I started, I was involved in starting up the EU Diversity Charter for Ireland. Uh, I've represented Ireland in, in Vienna at one of the, uh, the uh, European conferences there. I am part of the IBEC Diversity Forum and have been actively contributing to that for the last uh, six, seven years. Uh, I'm connected into, uh, I'm, I represent DCU and Vodafone on, on the 30% Club. I'm part, I was part of Connecting Women in Technology for many years, part of WXN, which I, I'm still part of WXN. And I'm also part of the Psychological Society of Ireland. So I'm on a committee member of the Division of Work and Organisational Psychologists. See, you make it all sound so easy, but that didn't happen easily, I don't think. And it's a very varied career between the mm. psychology and mm. the design. Did one kind of lead to the other? And, and how did that happen, especially for somebody from a tech background? Yeah, I think, and I suppose back to my point about there being a couple of threads throughout my career, I do think that I've always been passionate about psychology. I've always been passionate about understanding people. Uh, I've always had a lot of empathy, I would say, uh, for people. And fairness is something that's really, really important. It's a, it's a key value for me. And I think in within the organizations that I've worked for, like tech industry is very male dominated. And I think that that's what led me to diversity and inclusion is kind of recognizing as throughout my career that there was an imbalance and that things are different when you're in an industry that's not balanced. So, I, yeah, so I would say people uh, and the focus on people absolutely is, is a thread uh, and transformational change. I love, for me, change, making things better, recognizing that things could be better and then uh, changing them f so that they are better for organizations. I would say that's one of my core skills. Those skills of empathy and being able to work in, in teams seems to be very much a female or it's often classified as a female type of leadership style. And they say the future is feminine in terms of transformational leadership. Is that true? Are, are there special skills that women bring to, uh, to leadership and, and leading in, in business or in organisations? I suppose academically, uh, some of the research has shown is that the style of the transformational leader is uh, more conducive to uh, the stereotypical qualities of, the f of a female, as in we're more communal, uh, so we tend to be more communal. And transformational leadership is more around, I suppose the best description of it is around building followership. So creating the vision, communicating that vision and allowing people to be creative and to be themselves and to and to connect in with your vision and follow you on the journey of transformational change. And I suppose one of the key pieces of it is to be mindful that different people react in different ways to, to change. So some people get really stressed by change and other people are energized by change. And I think that as a, as a leader, if you're mindful of that, it's a lot easier then to make sure that everybody is supported at every stage of the journey. And, and I would see that as one of the key skills of a transformational leader. I would say there are equally men and women that are transformational leaders, but I suppose from a stereotypical qualities perspective, perhaps it is more conducive to a style of female leadership yeah i like what you're saying you know about being in work or showing up to your job as yourself mm. I, i've often talked to groups of women and particularly younger women who say they can't really be themselves in an interview interview situation that they kind of have to park some of themselves outside the door if they want to get the job in the first place what would your advice to them be yeah, it would depend on the context of the job they're going for and it would depend on what it is they're trying to leave at the door. It certainly wouldn't be my approach. It wouldn't yeah, be my approach. I think yeah. particularly their young mothers, um, and they're talking about having families and their interest in their development. And, you know, it, it's almost like a sin to come in and talk about your family. Yeah, I do. I, I do think it would depend on the company and the environment. And I think this that's a great point because it leads back to your first question around why do we need diversity and inclusion? Because I think if an organization, if you can't go into an organization and talk about your family and talk about your life and it become 
part of like I, I describe it as you've eight hours to sleep, you've eight hours to live and you've eight hours to work. And it, so that's a third of your life is spent in that organization. And if you can't combine, if, there, if there's no link between the eight hours of your life and the eight hours of your work, like that's, that's not a good place from a psychological perspective. So I think it, that's why it's important that companies have diversity and inclusion policies and have a focus on building an inclusive workplace so that when somebody is interviewing and comes into the organization or thinking about coming into the organization, that they have an understanding of the culture, the values, the belief of that organization and that they can bring their whole self to work. And if that includes family, that includes family. I think it's also liberating for men to be able to talk about family in, in work. I remember Joan Burton saying that, you know, when they started talking about family and making family hours available and, and working with all around family situations, that actually the men benefited hugely from that as well. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I have seen that in some organisations where, and particularly with younger cohort of men, where when paternity leave came in, it was I, like I found it, it was quite unusual to see it, but where men were shown pictures of their babies and delighted to be taking a couple of weeks off to go and, and spend the first few weeks. And, and I think it's great to see that. And I see that now with, with my brothers and in my own family. And I think it's great that it's encouraged and that it's spoken about and that it's not seen as career limiting to come in and talk about your family or take paternity leave and... I suppose to be proud of being a good dad and being part of your family and contributing to your child's life. I think that, that that's a great progress for, our, for us as a society. I just want to come back to you and talk to you about your own, um, your master's. Um, tell me a little bit about what you discovered and what you, what you did in, in terms of your master's on work and organisational behaviour. Yeah, so my master's, it's, it was work and organisational psychology and... I focused on transformational leadership and its ability to drive innovation within teams. So my, my case study was Vodafone, which was brilliant. I was working there at the time, so it was, it was great to get the opportunity to use a, a live tech company. Sure as, they were glad to. They were, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, and it was good. I suppose the output for me, it, it was when we think about innovation, innovation is really creating the space for people to be creative within their role. And to have the opportunity to feel like they contribute, to challenge where they see when things aren't working properly, and to come up with new ways and better ways of looking after our customers or better ways, more efficient ways of doing things. So for me, innovation is absolutely critical and not just in the tech industry, by the way, I think in every industry. And I think if you create space for people to be creative, they will solve the problems within the business. So it's about creating space and giving people a voice and that's not necessarily around diversity and inclusion that is it's i suppose it's my leadership style i'm a transformational leader and for me when i led and built teams it was very much around collaboration creativity people having a voice and collective decision making and testing trying failing and piloting things until we got it right uh, but for me that is it's the fastest route to success it's the how you create high-performing teams uh, and how you build an inclusive workforce as well. And it comes very naturally, but I wanted, to t I wanted to test that and understand that at a deeper level academically. So that's why I chose those two topics of transformational leadership and innovation. What did you discover? Uh, I discovered, yes, um, with no surprise, that transformational leadership does drive innovation and it fosters innovation within teams. So... The style of transformational leadership is something that could be taught within businesses, absolutely. And particularly if it's an industry like the tech industry or it's an industry that is growing and moving at a fast pace, I think you need to have transformational leaders. So, you know, you either hire a whole load of female managers or 50-50 at least, um, or you start to teach uh, the leaders that you have, I suppose, transform and coach your managers to move from managers into leaders and and help them understand some of the characteristics of a transformational leader. What are those characteristics? Uh, well, it is, around, I suppose I've mentioned some of them already. I suppose it is around um, building the vision. So having building a strategic vision and, and I suppose having the courage to be able to do that and then articulate it and create followership. They're the key things. 
I suppose it, it can be a risky strategy in some ways because you are creating a space for people to challenge you. So the people who follow you, you're creating a space for them to challenge you. So you have to be able to manage that. But I think one of the, the, the rewards of that are, is, is the creativity that comes out of it. That's the, the real part. And, and the reward for the business is transformational change. That's, you can lead transformational change projects uh, and, and cha- fundamentally change a business uh, it very quickly with, with low impact uh, by using the uh, transformation in the style of a transformational leader. You mentioned they're being challenged. <clears throat> Not every leader likes to be challenged, but yet you would say it's a, it's a very healthy thing. And how do you manage challenge? If you're not used to being challenged and you'll just like to be, if you just like to be a leader and lead from the front and say, this, this is my way, you know, how do you help someone to see the light of accepting challenge and just going with it? Yeah, I think it's about consensus. I suppose that there's a balance in managing challenge uh, like what you don't want is a disruptor for example so somebody who's deliberately being disruptive is not collaborative I think healthy challenge is creating an environment where people feel that they have a voice that they can call things out that they can contribute maybe to something that you hadn't thought about uh, I still will I'm always the leader and I think anybody who's ever worked for me will will absolutely say that yeah I, I am the leader uh, and I, I suppose I would have the, the final say, but I am open to, pers- not persuasion, but I'm open to changing and taking things on and trying things. Uh, and, uh, you know, if somebody comes up with a new idea, my, my approach would be, let's try it, try it, let's try it, let's check back in next week and see, see how that works. But if I, I think, and it has happened where you have people who are challenge just for the sake of challenging because you've created the environment and maybe they're taking advantage of that and I think the only way to approach that is that's a one-to-one conversation that's not something now you can stop it in 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 a group environment if it's been if it's having a negative impact on the other people in the group but I think a one-to-one conversation around you're either on my bus or you're not I think needs to happen then to stop that Another thing you mentioned was listening to people. Mm. So occasionally you might have quiet people who may have something really good to say, but they're mm. not that. They're not the challenger. They're mm. not the person who's very comfortable yeah. with saying something, even though they might have something really brilliant to contribute. How do you manage that situation? Yeah, and I, and again, I think it's back to the style of a transformational leader. And I suppose also me having a psychology background and understanding the different personality styles w- would help. But for me... I deliberately and consciously make sure that everybody in the team has a voice. So simple things, like one of the simple things I would do when I am conducting my weekly meetings or I always make sure everybody is asked, everybody, I go around the table. So every single person gets an opportunity. Did you get what you need to say? Is there anything that you want to add to that? And I I think that that's important. Sandra, you're now working here in DCU. Um, Tell me about what your new role is and what you hope to achieve. So in DCU, we have over 2,600 staff across the three campuses. We have over 16,000 students. Uh, We have one of the largest teacher training institutions in Europe, in in St. Pat's. So, yeah, it's a Church of Ireland one now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So so we've three locations. So it's quite a quite a large campus environment. And I'm based here now in the Glasnevin campus. So you have All Hallows, uh, St. Pat's. We, We have All Hallows, Matter Day. St. Pat's and here in, in Glasnevin. So it's the first time we've ever had a focus in, on diversity and inclusion. And I actually came in to present, it was probably about seven or eight months ago now, I came in to present to the Women in Leadership Committee on diversity and inclusion and diversity and inclusion best practice. And over conversations happened over the summer and uh, I'm now here leading on the diversity and inclusion. But Are for you the me, first person in this role? In f- focusing specifically on diversity and inclusion. So part of my role is equality as well, so I, I cover that. But specifically around building a strategy and a focus on diversity and inclusion for, for uh, DCU. Yes, the first time that that role has been in place. So I see that's a blank canvas. So great example, uh, a great opportunity for me. Like when I was in O2, uh, I set up and led the diversity and inclusion team there. And then myself and Danuta Gray, who was CEO at the time, were involved in uh, the Diversity Council and the setup of the Diversity Council in Europe. So it's great 
to be able to come into an organization and put into practice then everything I have learned over the last seven or eight years on, on a voluntary basis. So what, what am I focused on, I suppose, since I started, so I started in December, really what I've been doing is, you know, meeting with the people at all levels in the organization and trying to get a sense of what it feels like to work here. How does it feel to, to be part of DCU, regardless of which campus you're on, campus you're on? And to understand, so what are, the, what are the great things we do already around supporting our employees and what are some of the other things we could be doing? And I think that that's really where, uh, where I come in and my planning comes in. Also, we're just about, we're going through a strategy refresh. So we will be launching our new strategy as a university uh, at the, the back end of this year. And for me, it's important that the language of inclusion and diversity is, is, is part of that and is weaved in as part of the strategic plan. And in parallel to that, then I am creating specifically a, a diversity and inclusion strategy for the university. So what are the pillars? What are the key things that we need to focus on? Making sure that it's data led. I think that that's really important. So finding the areas that, you know, the, the specific things that will make the most impact in the shortest amount of time for the staff. Yeah, and I would say I'm probably 70, 80 percent now ready to kind of uh, launch that now with the senior leadership team. And then we'll be able to start communicating that then down a, a across the university. So it'll be mainstreamed into every decision making. And, and that's it. And I, I suppose one of the things I've said from day one was that I don't want to create something outside what already exists. Like really diversity and inclusion and particularly inclusion is around the culture and how it feels to be here. And I don't want to create something else that sits outside. So for me, it's really important that it becomes embedded in what we do. So it may be a case of we have to put a real laser focus on a particular aspect uh, for a, a time. But the intention would always be then that, that it gets embedded into the day to day practices of how we go about things. So and that's my approach to to diversity and inclusion and use it data, use the data, start use the data to help you identify the problem and to create a benchmark and then use that to then measure and, and a temperature check Does that, over time. Does that measuring and monitoring becomes embedded into the system as well and as part of your annual report or how do you, how do you work that one out? Yeah, so th that's an important thing for me is around like data collection, for example. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but we uh, have achieved the Athena Swan bronze accreditation which is absolutely fantastic, fantastic and, mm -hmm. and a, a great for me to come in and, and build on that but I think the hard work starts now because we made a lot of commitments in that and what we're doing now is embedding that into the day-to-day -day practices of what we're doing. One of the key things is data collection and using the data to understand uh, what's happening in the different schools, where are we making progress, where do we need to focus on, and what we're trying to do as much as we possibly can is automate that. Uh, some of the other things we're doing around data, for example, is making sure that we're being inclusive in our data collection. So, for example, instead of just having male and female on our e-recruit forms, we're changing that so we have male, female, non-binary and other. Uh, but we're kicking off a project now around well, what else does, what else needs to be there? How can we make sure that we are an inclusive campus? So they're small things. Uh, one of the other things we're doing then is we're collaborating. I'm part of a group of uh, DNI leads within the different universities around Ireland, and one of the areas that we will focus on is we have a single supplier for our HR management systems and we want to work with them to make sure that we're fit for the future when it comes to data collection across the higher education sector so i think there's power in the in the collective and getting our heads together and get it right there so what are the barriers that you think get in the way of diversity and inclusion particularly for women i think unconscious bias is probably one of the biggest barriers and i think if for if you're not familiar with unconscious bias i think it can be described as um, habits of thought so when we automatically make decisions or take action without consciously paying attention so we are we all have unconscious bias it's not that some people have have it and other people don't we it is simply how our brains work we take shortcuts um, to get to decisions and to take action. I think another one calls a cognitive miserly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that can negatively impact uh, the minority group, whether it be female or whatever. It's, it doesn't necessarily have to be female. And I think that's, that's 
the key of that is is looking at diversity and and creating an inclusive environment. But the challenge is, I think, is when you're not in the dominant group. When you're in the dominant group, you have no idea of your privilege. So you can't see your privilege and you don't understand what it feels like to be in the subordinate group. And I remember I was watching it, listening to a TED talk uh, a few weeks ago. And I heard a great story. There was a, a project group working. So there were four or five different people. There was a, a man was part of the project. There was a, an African-American female and a white American female and a couple of other women. And the white uh, female said to the African-American female, she said, in my view, I think all women should support each other and should help each other. We're all, we all have the same struggle and it just makes sense that we all support each other. And the African-American woman said, well, can I ask you a question about that? She said, when you look in the mirror in the morning, what do you see? And she said, well, I look in the mirror and I see that I'm a woman and I'm American. And she said, well, when I look in the mirror in the morning, she said, what I see is that I'm a woman, but I'm black. And the man who's telling the story said he almost felt embarrassed to, uh, to say what he sees when he looks in the mirror, because when he looks in the mirror, he sees a human. So what, what that story is demonstrating is the dominant group. So the white male is in the dominant group. So therefore, he doesn't has no concept of what it's like for the subordinate group, as in the female. And the white female is in her dominant group, and she has no concept of what it feels like for the subordinate group of the African-American female. So I thought it was a great, a great way of <clears throat> describing um, the, the dominant and subordinate groups. And I think a lot of the work that uh, I would do in particular throughout my diversity and inclusion career, if you, if you could say that, is around how do we include men? I think that that's the biggest challenge is how do we include men in the conversation? How do we bring them to the table? I think quite often sometimes statistics can alienate them and calling out percentages and things like that because I think they feel, well, I didn't create that problem. I'm not part of the problem. I don't think like that. There's nothing I can do about it. And they disengage. So I, th I think stats can have the opposite effect. So really, I, I think exploring unconscious bias and in particular privilege and uh, helping the people who are in the dominant group, uh, including women, uh, men and women, helping them understand the difference of being in the dominant group and the subordinate group and helping them get a concept and I suppose create awareness and empathy uh, across the, the, the different groups. I think that that's really important. And myself and Peter Cosgrove, he's a, a director in CPL uh, and we're both uh, part of the 30% Club. We ran a workshop, we created and ran a workshop called Building Inclusion Together a couple of months ago now, I think it was back in April where we had uh, over 60 senior male leaders in the room and we delivered a workshop on unconscious bias and privilege. And it's exactly that. It was around helping people understand what is unconscious bias? How do you recognize that it's there? How do you make sure that you're making, consciously making decisions? And focusing on privilege, I think, which was probably the most powerful part of, of the workshop and the most impactful, I think, for, for the people in the room. But really, it was about them having some practical live examples of what can they do to drive change and focus on gender balance when they go back into their organizations. It's easier said than done, I think. Absolutely, 100 percent. And I don't think. Do you think men are threatened by it as well? The old boys network and, you know, because yeah, men are really good. In fairness, I always admire that about men. They're very good at looking after each other. Like that old school. It's, it's well motivated, that, that old school tie. Yeah, often we should wonder if women should be better at doing that as well and supporting other women. Yeah, I like. I don't know. Like I, it's hard. Like I, I hear all the time, you know, and and I and it's a, I I know that saying that Madeleine Albright, you know, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. I have to say, like my my view is that I think there are women who don't support other women, and there are as equally the same amount of men who don't support other men. And then there are men and women who support nobody and just look after themselves. And they're the uh, they're the types of people that we come up against. And maybe it's it's more apparent or more pronounced when a, when a woman does that. 
I, I don't know. Maybe it's because from a stereotypical perspective, we're expected to behave differently. Maybe it's seen as uncharacteristic um, because of the communal qualities of, of, of being female. But I don't think there are any more women who don't help other women than there are men who don't help other men. And to your point about the, the boys network, like boys network, there's your, your point. Do women network? How much value do we as women put on network? I have a huge network of people around me. I consciously put a lot of work and effort into keeping that alive. And I have fantastically supportive women around me. And they know that they could pick up the phone to me. And I know I could pick up the phone to them. But that takes work. So that boys network is a boys network. And I think men have really <laughs> captivated something there, haven't they? They put the time and the effort into creating that network where women go in, it's called the tiara effect, where they go into work, they get their head down and they do a fantastic job and they expect that somebody is going to tap, on the, tap them on the shoulder and they don't self-promote and they don't network and then they don't have that support system around them. I heard Katrina Hallam talking about that. Yeah. You know, women will tend to go in and work in a kind of a silo mentality, mm. as they'd say in the, in mm. the United States, and expect, you know, a bit like a flower. If you, you know, mm. I'm here, I'm beautiful, you know, or, or I'm doing a great job, yeah. you know, come promote me. But it doesn't happen. You have to use a bit of your male and female qualities in yourself. I yeah. think. And I think it's to do with, in, and certainly in my experience of coaching women and working with women, uh, I do think it is related to n not no not self-promoting. You know, it, like it's not something I grew up in a house with three boys. I learned very quickly how to self-promote and 20 years in the telecoms industry working in teams of where uh, quite often I was the only female. So I learned to find a voice uh, and to make sure that I was heard. And I think if you haven't been in that environment it can be very difficult then when you go into the workplace and it is maybe very loud and there's a lot of voices and maybe women kind of disengage from that. And and I think women find it, some women find it a bit awkward to self-promote and, and it's so, you have to learn to self-promote. You know, maybe for men, they don't have to learn so much to self-promote. But if it's a skill, self-promotion, if, it, if it's not a natural thing, well, then it's a skill that you must learn. And if you're ambitious and you want to get on, and particularly in the corporate environment, if you want to survive, uh, you, you need absolutely critical that you learn to self-promote and network. I think a lot of it's to do with the way women are raised, but I think you're probably lucky that you grew up in a house with, with three boys and three young men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Helps a big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, unconscious bias. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that? Is there anything that can be done? I mean, being aware of it might be one thing, but... You know, can you track, can you measure unconscious bias? Is there any way of counteracting unconscious bias? No, I, th I think, I suppose the way most organisations approach it is the, like unconscious bias training, I think every organisation recognises that it absolutely has to be delivered. Like, for example, in DCU, we employees cannot take part in interviews or selection panels unless they have been through unconscious bias training. It has to take place and it does make a difference. Uh, and particularly, like that's only within the higher education sector, obviously. You know, in I think in organizations, a lot of organizations do start with rolling out unconscious bias training. And generally what they do is they start with senior leadership team. I think from a selection and assessment panels, it's absolutely critical. Because one of the biggest unconscious biases I suppose we would have is that people like people like themselves. And what you don't want to be doing is, particularly when it comes to selection and assessment, what you don't want to be doing is unconsciously making decisions, perhaps about maybe somebody's age or where they came from or their accent, which is a very big thing in Ireland, uh, or, or how they look or things like that. So, so they're simple biases, shortcuts that we take that when it comes to selection and assessment, I think are absolutely critical. So that's why we apply it in that context. I think in for organizations that are just starting on the diversity and inclusion journey, I think it is a great starting point for this to get the senior leaders on board is to help them understand their own unconscious bias and to recognize I suppose, how powerful it can negatively or positively impact uh, decision making. And I think it's a it's a, it's a great tool. The challenge for organizations is the sustainability of it. And how do you deliver it? How do you get it throughout 
the whole organisation. That's the biggest challenge. And then how do you make sure it's sustainable? So you've got the Athena Bronze Award, which is phenomenal. Yep. What does that involve for DCU? Um, what does it mean you have to do? And is it useful? Do you think it's useful? And do you want to progress? Do you need to get a silver next? Or what's, what's your goal in terms of Athena Swan? Yeah, so our, our plan is uh, we're already working towards silver. So we're working through the we have work streams where we're focused on delivering what, what we committed to do within uh, the our bronze uh, award and we're focusing then on, on silver and for us it's around identifying where what what are the next schools now that we're going to take through and support through the process and I think that that's really important I suppose one of the most significant things that's happened with the Athena Swan award at this point is that it's moved beyond stem and it has now moved into the humanities and the arts. So that's great because it means then we can start to focus on gender balance at all levels within all schools within the university, not just the STEM subjects. By schools, you mean like the business schools? The schools, of business, yes, absolutely. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Institute of Education. So right across the board, yeah. Tell me about the what you've learned from networking over the year, about the power. Do you believe in the power of networking? I suppose I'm a product of the power of networking and my career is the, a product of the, the power of networking. So for me, networking is absolutely critical and particularly if you want to have career flexibility. So I have been fortunate enough that as I've built my network over the years, that if I wanted to move around within a company or if I decided I wanted to move company, it was very simply making phone calls and going and meeting people and having good conversations and, and interviewing them for, you know, going through the HR process. So for me, it's absolutely critical to have a, a good network. And I think, again, back to my point is it's networking is a skill. So if you're not a natural, if you don't naturally network and you're not an extrovert and you're not used to having conversations with people that you don't know. So accept that, recognize it and identify it as a skill. And a skill is something that you need to learn. It's going to be clunky until you get until you get better at it. And then eventually, then the more times you practice it and the more it will become, you'll become skillful at it. And I think that that's really important. And particularly for younger women. So I would talk uh, to like gra graduate groups, like I chaired the Women's Network in Vodafone for three years. And I would have done a lot of talks with younger women and coaching with the younger women in the organization and in other organizations. And I always say, absolutely, networking is critical. Get your LinkedIn up to date, get your picture up there and get out and start having conversations with get other women. Get a good women. picture too. Yeah, yeah, get a good picture. That's really important. And yeah, and, and I think they have a business card and have them ready. Um, I was at this conference and a woman got up and demonstrated what it was like to network with women. Typically, they say, where did I put my card? And they bend over and arse in the air, you know, looking for their business card. It's rooting somewhere in mm -hmm. their bag. Whereas you go to a men's networking, they have one pocket they take out, give their business card and the other one for ones they receive, they put in the, on the other side. Mm. That it's just seamless for them and they just do it much more naturally and they're not carrying around a handbag full of crap mm. as well. Yeah, I don't use business cards and haven't for a couple of years. I use LinkedIn. So if I meet somebody... So I, I suppose when I go to a networking event and I go to a lot of them, like as I said, I'm connected with the Women's Executive Network, which has been absolutely fantastic for me. Uh, and that's just one of uh, one of the networks I go to. I think it's important that you have a topic that you're interested in. So people think that they're going to go in and I don't know what they think they're going to talk about. But for me, and particularly when I was doing the master's or if I'm leading a project in work or if I'm in here and I'm focusing on a particular aspect or trying to figure out a particular aspect of diversity and inclusion, that's what I'm going into that room with. So I'm going in, I suppose, trying to figure out who can help me find out what I need to find out. Uh, who might be interested in um, the same topic or the same subject that I, I'm talking about. So, for example, when I was doing my master's and I, I would be reading academic papers on like tipping point leadership or transformational leadership, they would be the, that's what I would be having conversations about when I went in into the room. And one thing I remember, uh, Keith Farazi is his name. He's written a book called uh, Never Eat Alone. And it's only it's a small book. And I think it's an absolutely fantastic book around some tips for networking. And one of the things he says is, is always make sure that you are given something. And I think that's something I would have done naturally is offering 
my services. I'll be looking for what can I do for you rather than what you can do for me. And now it's always going to be a reciprocal relationship, whether it be in that room or at a later point. But for me, it's always about what I'm listening for is what can I do for you? And for example, if you're a young woman and you're a graduate and you're in a tech company and you're talking to somebody else, regardless of what level or who they are in another company, you have a story to tell. You're a graduate. You're working in a tech company. Your your own personal experience is something that you can talk about uh, and it can add value to somebody else's understanding of what it's like to be you. And that's very powerful. And that's you're you're very passionate about getting more younger women into tech, too. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Why is that? Because there's a shortage of women in tech. It's a real problem for us. It's a real problem for us in Ireland. And it's not just in tech, like even in the academic context, we have a real challenge in Ireland around young women in STEM. And Are women good at STEM? Of course, women. Why would women not be good at STEM? Like, I, I what's, think, I what's think in, interesting? I to engineer, uh, Engineers Ireland that they say mm. women are always like, well, I'm not good at maths and I'm not good at mm. chemistry. So there's almost this programming going on in their own heads from the time they're in school. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, I met, we met recently with uh, Caroline O'Driscoll from, she's one of the partners in KPMG and, and herself and a couple of other people set up the I Wish conference which focuses on transition year girls. So every year they run an event for 2,000 transition year girls in, uh, to, it, it, and encourage them to stick with the STEM subjects. That's what the focus is about. And some of the conversations we were having a couple of weeks ago were around research showing that teachers who are in all-female schools adapt their teaching style. Uh, so the teach so it's adapt their teaching style so it's more conducive to the learning uh, and the knowledge transfer of the of those particular subjects and then at the same time the research is showing that if if a female is in an all-girl school she's more likely to stick with maths with the higher maths we have to think about that and and i think some of the research the Accenture produced some research there a couple of years ago and another a couple of more papers now have come out around who are the biggest influencers of girls when it comes to subject choice and career choice and interestingly the research showed that teachers and parents said we don't we have no influence it's all peer influence but yet what the research is showing is that the teachers are the biggest influencers when it comes to subject choice and the parents are the biggest influencers when it comes to career choices. And the challenge we have around that is that if teachers have never experienced what it's like to work in the tech industry or never experienced what it's like to work in industry, how are they going to influence the young people to make choices to go into that industry? So one of the things when I was part of Connecting Women in Technology, one of the things uh, we worked on with the 30% Club, actually, Breedhorn, the 30% Club, was piloting a teacher's intern program with the teachers from DCU. So organizations in the tech industry, uh, using some of their graduate places or creating additional places for trainee teachers to get spend some time immersed in industry. So they start to get an experience of what it feels like to work in that industry. So that when they go back into the classroom, that they can influence but based on experience and the, relate the learning. Yeah. And the research shows that any t every teacher will have access to over 40,000 students through their career. So quite a significant impact you can make by supporting trainee teachers. That's if someone would get tempted to stay in tech and not go back <laughs> into the class. There is that. Yeah. <laughs> um, nearly finished now. Ambition. Uh, we mentioned it just a short while ago. It's sometimes considered almost a dirty word for women. And yet we know that we'll... Uh, never erase the gender pay gap or achieve gender balance and equality at all levels of organisations without a little bit of ambition. Uh, what do you think we can do to change perceptions about the need to instil ambition and make it okay to be a woman and still have ambition to lead? When I was in, when I chaired the Women's Network for Vodafone, I, I would have done quite a lot of research around um, the, the plight, if you want to call it that, of, of women in, in particularly in Europe at the moment. So 14.6% pay gap in Ireland, 10% representation on corporate boards, 26% representation in government. So we're 25 out of 27 uh, countries in Europe for female representation in government. Uh, 
and we're 51% of the population and we're called diversity, but yet we're 51% of the population. So if we leave things to organically change at the rate of change, it'll be 180 years for parity. So we have to think about how many generations of our daughters and grandchildren are if we just leave things. So something has to change uh, in, in that context. Back to your point about your question about ambition. I don't think we need to instill ambition in women. What we need to do is create organisations that foster support and develop the ambition within the women who have the fire. And I am a perfect example of that throughout my career. And in my experience, women are no less ambitious than men. Uh, but maybe it's they make different choices at different points in their life and different at different points in their career. But when a woman is ambitious and she is supported and is in the right organization with the right envi environment, she is unstoppable in exactly the same way as any man who is ambitious and is supported and is in the right environment. But it's about recognizing and accepting the nuance of female versus male and that maybe a male being supported is different to a female being supported. And the environment that fosters and supports a female could be slightly different to the environment that fosters and supports an ambitious man. And I think that it's just organisations and that's where diversity and inclusion comes in and that's where the uh, development programmes come in with a diversity and inclusion uh, lens, if you like, is is understanding the nuance of male and female and and accepting that and making sure that the programmes that are developed support female ambition. I love that word, unstoppable. Yeah. Because when you look at the women who have risen to the top, you think all the barriers that they've overcome to get there. Mm. And they, they really must have had some wonderful ambition and support within their organisations, within their families, just mm. to get there. Finally, <clears throat> I always like to ask people about their, their top five pieces of advice, their pearls of wisdom uh, for other women, particularly uh, other women. What would yours be, Sandra? Yeah, so I think I've mentioned this one already. Uh, it's never too early to start building your network. And I think that that's absolutely critical. And when I speak to women, whether they be 22 and straight out of their master's or whether they be 50 years of age and some of coming back into the workforce. So I was involved in uh, mentoring some women who were returning to technology and some of them had taken 10, 15 years out. And always I say to them, it is never too early to start building your network. And back to your point about business cards, I don't use business cards. I use LinkedIn. Don't get caught up in all of that. You know, you, you get your LinkedIn profile up, make sure you have your picture up and, and start building your network. And that is consciously building your network. So building your network within the organization, that can mean very simply putting your hand up to lead on a project that maybe you mightn't do. Look out for and find out, is, are there any women's networks set up? Are there diversity and inclusion teams? And start to get involved and get out of your comfort zone and externally then start to have a look at opportunities for externally networking and start to build, whether that be within your industry or, or you know, maybe not necessarily within your industry, but always be seeking and finding uh, opportunities to network and build your networking skills. The second one I would say is don't be afraid to ask for help or seek coaching early in your career. So I do sometimes one-to-one -one coaching uh, with women and I, I think the most common thing I hear is I should have come to you ages ago. I should have thought about this. You know, I suppose the one thing for me about having built such a fantastic network of supportive uh, people and a, a significant amount of them are women is and I'm not afraid to ask for help. So if I need to go and ask advice and simple things, uh, if I need to go and ask advice and make sure I'm on the right track, I have many people that I can reach out to and they reach out to me as well. And I think that's the power of, of the network and the coaching. It doesn't necessarily have to be 20 sessions. It could be simply three or four just to kind of help you transition maybe to a different role or transition maybe into a different industry or into a different, uh, a different organization. Don't be afraid to reach out and and find now obviously finding a coach is is important that you find somebody that inspires you i think third one i have is promote 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 blow your own trumpet because nobody else is going to do it for you and i think that that is absolutely critical and it is the one thing i see that women don't do and 
very simply, if you've delivered something for the business or you've you've fixed something or you've created something, just put it in an email. Think of the people that you've positively impacted. Send it to your boss and promote what you've done. You know, call out what you've done, explain the rationale of where it came from and what is the impact? What is the return on investment for you, the time that you've put in and get in the habit of doing that. And the first few times you do it, it's going to feel really awkward. But I think it's absolutely critical that you start again another skill that needs to be learned and developed is promoting yourself. The fourth one, I would say, uh, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and uh, Breed Horan was presenting and she said something that I thought was absolutely brilliant and I will make sure now becomes part of, of the way I work. And she said, we overestimate what we can achieve in the short term and underestimate what we can achieve in the long term. And from a transformational change project, I think that that's fantastic. And particularly in the role I'm in here, like some of the things that I will achieve are going to take like cultural change and transformational change takes a long time. And the more people you have and the more distributed those people are, the longer it takes because it is about a sense of how people feel about things. And that takes a long time to change. So I think what I liked about Breed's advice is balance both and you don't get disillusioned then. So focus on what you can achieve in the short term and keep pushing, but always keep your eye on what are you achieving over the longer term and keep balanced uh, your focus on that. I thought that was fantastic. And the final one then is get out of your comfort zone. Start today uh, and do one thing that scares you. I suppose that's one thing, like a couple of things, uh, examples of where I've applied that to my own life. I remember maybe about two or three years ago, I decided I wanted to start using Twitter and I was being lazy about it and wasn't doing it. So anyway, I decided first of January, I said, right, every day I'm going to send a tweet every day, whether I just retweet, send a tweet, doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to build a habit and I'm going to start tweeting. And by the end of that year, I had thousands of tweets and I had, you know, and, and I had actively taught myself to actively start using Twitter. A simple thing. And but it's about creating the habit and doing a small thing. Um, and, and I suppose that's it really so get out of your comfort zone and get used to living because if you're ambitious get used to living outside there and you'll have a fantastic career and that was the head of diversity and inclusion in DCU Dublin City University Sandra Healy a woman who doesn't stand still for long and has her eye on the bigger picture and longer term the Women in Leadership podcast is still in the market for sponsorship and we're now getting a worldwide audience for the show, particularly in the United States. So if you would like to support the mission of the Women in Leadership podcast to hear more women's voices on the topic of leadership and to assist more women to achieve their leadership dreams, please do send us an email now to info at womeninleadership.ie. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Blueberry and soon on YouTube. That's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for now. Do get in touch with suggestions for people you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast or do get in touch with us with your own pearls of wisdom. We'd love to hear from you and our email address is info at womeninleadership.ie That's info, I-N-F-O, at womeninleadership.ie Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti and all in the Women in Leadership team, goodbye and take care.